Hey, welcome to night school. Doing a little vaping actually tonight, which is a rarity. It's very rare that I vape and record episodes of this. Rare, a, a real rarity. Be a good name for a little girl. Be a good name for your daughter. Hey, Rarity. This is my daughter, Rarity. Get over here, Rarity. Because you can kind of growl that. Like, if you're mad at your daughter, if you are mad at your daughter, Rarity, you can kind of growl it. Rarity. Rarity. You know, you can really kind of, the R's in there. You can roar it. You can roar the name Rarity. And it's a name now. (laughs) I say that casually, you know, I just now made it a name, but I say rarity as if that's, what's a, wait a second, you you said that this collectible item, you called it a rarity, is that spelled the same way as the little girl's name? You can kind of growl it, but you can also say it softly, like rarity has a certain, uh, you you know, you could kind of get lyrical, you could sing it. Sing that little girl's name. Hey, yo, sing that little girl's name. Uh, Rarity. I'm not going to sing it. Someone could sing the name Rarity. It won't be me. But yeah, we're doing a little vaping. It's called, uh, we're, it's called We're Doing a Little Vaping. That was one of my favorite, that is one of my favorite Trumpsfeld statements. I feel like it happened over the summer. It might have been longer ago. I feel like it wasn't that long ago. But when he said, we're doing a little trolling. It's called, we're doing a little trolling. It's called. It's the it's called part of that. Because that's how my brain works. I like things that sound the way my brain works. Like, I don't talk the way I think necessarily. Maybe to some degree. But it's like, I don't feel that I actually talk the way that I think thoughts and the thing about Trumpsfeld, and this is one of the reasons he appeals to people, is that he talks the way many people think. Like, there's no barrier there. And I'm not talking about the fact that he doesn't have a filter. I'm not even talking about that. There just seems to be no separation between the way he thinks and the way he talks. And then the other side of him, too, I didn't mean for this to just go into some sort of Trumpsfeld analysis. The Trumpsfeld analysis. Welcome to another hour of the Trumpsfeld analysis. A nightly show. Now, that's the name of every show for the last four or five years. They might as well. Oh, yeah, we've decided to, to change the names of CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, for that matter. Change them all to the Trumpsfeld analysis. Um, but, uh, yeah, I didn't mean to go into all this, but I guess here we are. But another thing about him that appeals to people is that along with, you know, his thoughts and his words seeming to be in complete harmony and harmony doesn't really do it justice because that still implies some element of duality that is nonetheless, you know, operating together. You know, it's in harmony. These two things or more things are in harmony. But, you know, the way that he talks and thinks, I don't even think that's harmony as much as it is just one whole thing. That is just one entire thing. And for that matter, physically, too. Everything about him is one thing. He thinks the way he talks and he looks the way he talks and he looks the way he thinks. Like all of the different 
sensory categories that he falls into basically feed perfectly into each other and are each other. Like if you said, how does he sound? Like if you had never heard him before, how does he sound? How does Trumpsfeld sound? You know, if you were to explain that to somebody who had never heard him, you could show a picture of him and that would accurately represent how he sounds. And, you know, if, if you, somebody asked, like, how he looks, you could play an audio recording of him and you would give that person an idea of how he looks. They could imagine. So there's this, he, he represents this wholeness. And that's the thing about him as well, like, you know, speaking about the appeal that he has with certain people. Uh, it's not just that he, he talks the way you imagine he thinks. And someone could say, oh, he, he doesn't think before he talks. No, he doesn't. He doesn't think before he talks. His talking is his thinking. And, uh, and not in like a stupid way, like, oh, you know, he doesn't think before he talks. You know, I don't even, I don't think it's stupid because it's obviously very effective. It's like, it's just, it's all stream of consciousness, really. You get this strong stream of consciousness feeling when you listen to him. And, and what goes along with that is the fact that he doesn't seem like he talks differently behind closed doors. I mean, everybody does in some way, but he doesn't seem like someone who would talk any differently behind closed doors. And when we've gotten these recordings of him, like the infamous recording of him talking to Billy Bush, it doesn't sound that much different than he talks all the time. Like, maybe it's a little more explicit, but I've seen footage of him at rallies where he says, fuck. I've seen him say, fuck. I've seen him say, shit. I've seen him swear at rallies. You know, he's, he's talked about, there was the rally not that long ago where he talked about, you know, he's like, I want to kiss all the women and the men. It was right after he recovered uh, from coronavirus. He's like, I just want to, he's like, I feel young. I want to kiss all the the women and, and men too. <laughs> you know, uh and uh, that's not that far off. Like, while there's nothing that, you know, there's nothing that bad about that statement. It's just cheesy, however you want to see it. If you, I mean, why do you even need to come up with a word for that? It's just that it is exactly what it is. But it's not that far different from his Billy Bush tape. Just a little less explicit. A little less, you know, just right for it. But it's a similar kind of thought. And you don't, he doesn't really sound that much different on that Billy Bush tape than he sounds any time you hear from him. And to, for people who hate him, well, there you go. I mean, they, it's like the fact that this guy always sounds that crass. Like, even if he's not talking about something crass, he sounds like somebody who's talking about something crass. And so people who hate him, they just feel like everything he is saying has to be crass. It has to be just um it has to be destructive and almost just because it's like it has such a, a tone to it and i don't think that people have necessarily been listening to everything he said i do believe that people who are just hysterical about trumpsfeld have basically just been hearing a tone or a pitch you know cuz sure they listen to what he says cuz they repeat it over and over again did you did you hear what he said did you hear what he said this week you know they do play that game 
But I don't think that's what they've really been responding to. I think they've been responding to a long, sustained tone. I mean, it's kind of like what I've been talking about with this show ever since this Winders update, where occasionally there will be this high-pitched noise behind my voice. It's like some sort of internal feedback, and I can't quite fix it, even though it's not always there. And And I have to say, I have to mention it, it was in the recent Every Night's a School Night, the original show every night's a school night I did I did a recent one a week a week or so ago and on a bunch of the a bunch of the speaking parts you can hear that noise and I thought I had fixed it but there it is and I'm especially upset that it's on an every night to school night because I like those to be you know I don't like those to have audio issues I don't really care if night school does because these just come out these just come and they go but I, you know, I like those. Uh, I think of every night to school night episodes as kind of a shelf. Like when I do one of those, I feel like it just it exists as kind of a shelf, and then it gets stuffed full of this shit. It gets stuffed full of night school episodes. But the shelf itself, the shelf itself, is every night to school night. And so for there to be an audio issue on that, like I like I'm talking about on this recent episode, that high pitched audio issue I've been having is on there, which bugs me more than it normally would. Because I'm just like my shelf has a has a glitch. That shelf is not very well built, (laughs) which would be a funny thing to say in somebody else's house. You know, that shelf in your house is not very well built. Someone would take offense. Don't you ever talk about my shelves. I built that shelf for my daughter, Rarity. Um, but anyway, there's an audio issue in that recent episode. And even though I already gave a disclaimer about this audio issue, this recurring audio issue, where I said that it's intentionally there as repellent, like how you can buy these these devices that let out a high-pitched noise and it supposedly keeps rodents out of your garage if you put it in there. I was saying how that it's, it's audiophile repellent. I'm intentionally putting annoying, barely discernible, but nonetheless present feedback into my episodes to keep audiophiles out. Because if you can't have me when I'm emitting some sort of weird high-pitched sound in the background, you don't deserve me at all, to use a stupid joke, but it's true. I feel like if you can't handle an occasional audio issue with this show, like, as long as you can hear my voice, I don't care about anything else, and if anything else is a hang-up, well, you know, go listen to something that's totally professional and never has high-pitched feedback in the background. Get out of here, you know, uh... But anyway, um, I did feel the need to mention that that audio issue just because it's not resolved. Um, Trumpsfeld, though, uh, this was all about Trumpsfeld, as many things are. Um, no, but you know, he, you don't feel like he talks behind closed doors that much differently from what we see of him. And while somebody who hates him, like I guess that's what sort of launched into that, someone who hates him, who everything he says is grating, to that person, the idea of him talking the way he talks backstage all the time, that grates on them even more. 
because it's like I they hate that side of him. They hate everything he represents. So the idea that he is that thing they hate all the time, you know, it that means they have to hate him all the time. Like he's not somebody where it's like, oh, I hate him on his TV show or I, I hate the role that he plays, but I can like this other part of him. You know, it's not you can't do that with him. You can't compartmentalize one aspect of Trumpsfeld, you know, and appreciate another. It's very difficult, at least. People do manage to do that, but it's very difficult for somebody who has fallen into this severe anti-Trump hysteria. It's it's very difficult for them to compartmentalize anything about him. But that's the same thing that appeals to the people who like him, because the idea is that, well, you know what? You know, even if I don't love the way he talks when he's on stage, that's not that far different from the way he talks backstage. So there's sort of an honesty in that where it's like, even if you don't like his personality, even if you don't like his voice, even if you can't stand the things he says, it's much easier to, to, um, you know, I, I guess compartment, I, I guess compartmentalize it. I'm just losing everything here, running off the rails. But, you know, I guess part of it is you could compartmentalize it and, you know, and just appreciate like one aspect of him or something. But I guess what I'm talking about isn't even that. It's somebody who finds him grating, but finds his consistency refreshing, which is true for me, for sure. Like, that's definitely how I see him, where I think like his consistency, if nothing else, love or hate him or feel many things about him or feel few things, whatever the hell it is you want to feel about this guy who's consumed so much public attention, most public attention, one of the most talked about, one of the most focused upon human beings in my lifetime, maybe the most, you know, but whatever it is you want to feel about that guy or not feel about him, you know, one thing that remains consistent is the way he talks and the way he communicates. And whether it's his TV persona, whether it's his politician angle, or whether it's just hearing a recording of him. You know, while he might not be saying the exact same things, you feel like you're listening to the same guy. Whereas we don't normally get that experience with politicians, where we often know that they are just a dummy. They, we know that they are reciting some sort of script or hitting upon these broad platitudes, these general talking points that they've rehearsed over and over again. And it sounds artificial, and we all point it out. I mean, it takes the same level of sophistication to be like, politicians are liars. Politicians? Oh, you mean professional actors? You know, it takes the same level of sophistication to point that out, that out as it does to be like, commercials are stupid. Oh, look, it's a commercial. Like, uh, they're just saying that because they want me to buy stuff. You know, it takes the level, same level of sophistication to point out that politicians are bullshitters as it does to point out that commercials are tacky. You know, it, it just, it's, it's not that interesting. It's so obvious, but yet it does need to get mentioned now and again. It's like one of those things you can't forget. Like there are some things that you think that you've moved so far past, like 
not to be high and mighty, but I'd like to believe that I've moved beyond the stage where I need to point out that politicians are virtually all liars. I felt the need to move beyond that. It doesn't mean I no longer believe it, but I just feel like I'm at a point in my life where that doesn't need to be the thing that I point out or the thing that I emphasize, you know, oh, hey, did you know that they're liars? It's just not what I'm all about. Uh, is just like po- it's it's pointing out something that to me at, at this point should just be obvious. And if it isn't obvious to you, I, I don't even want to engage you about it. You know, if if you and if you truly believe in politicians, if you truly trust politicians, and it would be news to you that they lie, I don't want to even be the one to break the news to you. That's like, who wants to be the person who tells a kid that Santa's not real? It's sort of the same thing where it's like, you know, even if that's the truth, if somebody's made it this far and still believes in Santa, I don't want to be the person who pops that bubble for him. Some people like to be the person who's like, well, let me tell you how it is. You know, some people kind of like taking on that that role of, oh, I'm going to I'm going to school you. I don't like to be that person. I don't like to be the person who bursts someone's bubble. I don't like to be the person who is like, oh, I'm just reeling you back to earth, man. I'm just bringing you back down to earth, man. You know, I don't like to feel like that person who's who's keeping people in check or putting people in their place. I mean, I think you inevitably do that. We all have judgments. We all say things, you know, that inevitably have that impact. But I don't think there's any joy in, like, being the person who, you know, ruins someone's illusion. Even if even if you don't think it's a good illusion. Like, the idea of trusting politicians, to me, is just, it's like, I don't want to be, that. I don't want that, here I am talking about it at length, I'm talking about why I don't talk about it. But it's something that should be obvious to anybody past a certain point in their lives. You know, I feel like most teenagers get hip to that pretty early. They see school, they get hip to that. Uh, but they, they go through school, they see that the politicians in their life, administrators, teachers, principals, you know. I mean, I, there were so many scandals by the time I graduated high school, it's unbelievable. The principal of my high school was like selling the use of our high school on Sundays to his church and pocketing some of the money or undercharging them. There was something, there was some scam involving the principal's church where the school allowed them to use the facilities on Sunday for money, but somehow there ended up being some backroom deal. And, you know, so you go through life and that's just, you know, the last of many, you know, there's other things. There's te- you, you know, there was a teacher sleeping with a student when I was in school. You know, those things happen, and uh, like look it up, Mark Bliley, uh, he slept with a, a 15-year-old girl who at one time was in my carpool, but uh, you know, that happened when I, I was probably in elementary school, but they he was a teacher at the junior high that I would go to where my sister had gone. You know, there's just different things that go on, and those are just more normal things. I mean, the, the teacher-student thing isn't quite normal, but it's just... There are a lot of normal controversies that happen. There are a lot of little things you notice as a kid that make you realize, okay, you know, this whole system of hierarchy, while it makes sense, the people in those roles seem at best imperfect 
And here I am seeing examples of them where they're also corrupt or, or they can't control themselves. You know, you see stuff like that happen and it's like, then you apply that outward. You apply that to, you know, the mayor, the mayor. Although I feel like a lot of people work from the outside in. Like, I think it's easy to look at people like the president and find their flaws and their areas of corruption or whatever it is that you don't like about somebody who's a president. Because it turns out they're the easiest person in the world to form an opinion on. Not necessarily an informed opinion, but they're the easiest person in the world to form an opinion on because people have just written it out for you. If you decide you just don't like a politician, people have given you this wealth of information that allows you to, all you have to do is say it. All you have to do is say the exact same thing they told you to say, and you can justify this dislike for a politician. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people work outward where it's like they recognize that the president is full of shit. And then they are like, oh, well, if, if the biggest politician in the world, if the most important politician in the world is full of it, doesn't that mean all the other politicians in the system underneath him are full of it, too? And, and it's so it's like either way you go, whether you start from the smallest component, whether you start with like your experience growing up and seeing what adults are like, whether you start with that or you look at the bigger picture and are able to like work backward and be like, well, if the most important people are just figuring things out as they go and full of just hot air and lies and whatever else it is they say and do like if the if the most important people are like that that means the most unimportant are probably like that too and so it's just an easy idea it's an easy place to you know to get your mind is like oh the people in leadership roles in our society are full of shit but then once you get to that point, it's it's just lame to keep saying it. It seems too obvious. And I guess that's a problem with me because I work from the position just naturally that everyone I know also knows that. And it seems like they do some of the time. But then when they get into this, you know, once they start playing the team game of politics, then they suddenly forget that again. Like, everyone seems to realize, oh, you know, we can't trust politicians and we don't like them. They don't really, uh, they don't really represent the people. They're these elites, you know, that have us wrapped around their finger. You know, people seem to figure that out. And then you end up with situations like this where the second you decide that you're voting for one, especially if it's a very emotional election, a very emotional situation like this recent presidential election. Let's say somebody who knew four months ago that Joe Biting was a, you know, basically a, a just standard cutout of a politician, like somebody who just knew that. They're like, this guy, is he stands for nothing. He's full of it. You know, somebody, I know many people, many people who voted for him who knew that months ago. But the second they've decided that, oh, I'm actually going to have to vote for this guy, they start to lose some of that that sense of who he actually is because now he's their guy. And it's very difficult to maintain and, you know, it's very difficult to have cognitive dissonance on your shoulders 
with a situation like that. Like, it's very hard to say, oh, you know, this guy that I'm voting for is a bullshit U.S. politician cut from the same mold as all of those other people that I know are total bullshitters. But I'm going to have to vote for him. Like, it's very difficult to manage the cognitive dissonance of seeing completely through this guy while also putting your oh-so-precious vote toward him. And how many people deal with cognitive dissonance is they'll reject one side of it or they'll go into a state of denial about one aspect of it, which in the case of politics is that they actually don't like this guy. They've actually seen through his bullshit their entire adult lives. But yet now that you've decided you have to vote for him, you have to do something about that cognitive dissonance. And the easiest thing to do is be like, well, he's actually one of the good ones. Oh, he actually represents, he's actually going to do, you know, he's not my person, but he's going to help my people. And, you know, you get into this game of justifying or, you know, what I like to always talk about explaining where it's like, you know, you then have to explain why you like this guy. When it's really, you're, you're, you're really just doing it because you don't like the other guy. You know, that's what a lot of people did this, this last election is they, virtually everybody who voted for Joe Bidding did so because they hated the other guy. And, uh, but, in, but the interesting thing about that is once they committed to Joe they started to come up with explanations and justifications for who he is and why they're voting for him. So it was interesting to see that, you know, if you weren't super caught up, you know, because I don't think a lot of right wingers, I don't think a lot of Trump voters would have noticed that themselves. You know, and some of them are doing it, you know, of course, some of them are going through the same process. But, you know, I don't think it's something that people who are too caught up in the trenches of this stuff notice. But it's very interesting from sort of, I'm not going to say I have, I have a top-down view, but from as someone who kind of likes to watch things play out from above, it was very interesting watching people go from this sort of like, yeah, Joe Biden's one of the bullshitters, you know, blah, 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 this is just a stepping stone, to suddenly being his loyalist. You know, watching that slow, that transition slowly happen and seeing how it coincided with the period when people knew they were going to have to vote for him or were already in the process of voting for him. Those two things kind of matched up. And, you know, yeah, I didn't do a scientific study, but I, I did pay attention to that as it was happening. Um, but that's the thing about this, all this gets into because I want to get away from just like minute modern American political analysis. And I want to get into that, this idea of con men and what people appear as, you know, the appearance that someone gives you. Cause you know, I was talking about how Trump's felled. He's kind of this whole mass. And if you hate one aspect of that mass, you hate all of him because you can't really separate one thing from the other. You can't separate the way he looks from the way he sounds, and you can't separate the way he talks from the way he thinks. So he's just this whole mass, and if you don't like one one part of that, you hate the whole mass, it seems like. Whereas, I think some of the perception of the, the Democratic Party, I'm not going to say the left, because you know, I think people argue rightfully that the Democratic Party doesn't represent the true left. And it might be a good thing that the true left doesn't have much, you know, full-on representation. 
Although it, it gets snuck in there for sure. It's definitely, it gets snuck in along with the Democrats. Um, but anyway, you know, with the Democrats being the way they are, there's sort of a perception of them that they are the people who smile to your face but stab you in the back. They're the people who pretend to be your friend and then gossip about you, you know, who spread lies about you. There's kind of a perception that that's what the Democratic Party is. And, of course, you could say the same thing about Republicans. You could say there's many examples of that, um, which is one reason why I think it's important to separate Trump from Republicans, because he's just too bizarre to be called a Republican, uh, politically bizarre. I, I just don't think it's accurate in any way. Even if he even if he aids Republicans, even if he operates under the Republican banner, I think he's just too much of an anomaly. Um, but uh, you know, there is this idea, especially under Trump, that Republicans are a little more. You know, they might insult you, but they're going to do it to your face. And I think that was a little less so when the evangelicals had a little more power during the Bush era, for example, where. I think they were a little more smile to your face and stab you in the back then, which I think is why neocons go hand in hand with the Democratic Party now. You know, I think because they both have that same style. They, you know, they have this smooth face, but they offer something very rough and disturbing behind that. Whereas, you know, this modern era, we have Trump who is just the things that are going to disturb you are just up front. And they're indistinguishable from anything else that he does. And so naturally, both Democrats and neocons are going to react, you know, in a very visceral way to that because it goes against everything that they are. Um, but, you know, with that perception, at least in recent years, that the Democrats are more, you know, they'll, they'll do something behind your back while the Republicans might do the same thing but they're going to be a little more blatant about it. You know, it's kind of like the con man idea. You know, that's what that makes me think of. And, and people call politicians con men. You know, politicians and con men have, have always been put together. You know, you know, it goes with the liar thing. That's, that's what I mean. When I say politicians are liars, what I really mean is they're con men. And it's, it's something that I don't point out as much as I could because it was just a teenage realization. And I know I, I just talked a bunch about that, but I just wanted to close that thought out that, you know, it was something I realized as a teenager. And I'm like, I don't need to spend all of my creative brain power just going over that again and again. Like once you know that, you don't need to stay there. Once you know certain things about the way that the world works, you don't need to just dwell on them unless you're genuinely interested in them or unless you're actually doing something with that thought. But like, I'm not going to do something with that thought. Like, I don't like, you know, punk rock. Like, I'm not going to start a punk rock band because I just want to dwell on the idea that our leaders are con men who don't have our best interests in mind. Like, there's no reason aside from this episode for me to, to make that a part of my you know, just a part of what I do with my time on earth, but it does need to be remembered. And, and, you know, and it, and it, that becomes apparent when you realize that some people come, some people go with the flow of it, where it's like when, when they like a politician, they trust them when they don't like them, they don't trust them. So it's like politicians are con men when I don't like them, you know, so that's sort of an aspect of all this.
And people call Trumpsfeld a con man, and I completely understand why. Like, I mean, it speaks for itself why someone would call Donald Trumpsfeld a con man. But I don't think it's that accurate. Like, I, I don't think that I know exactly what they mean. Like, that's not one of those things where, if, you know, if one of the many people who says this, but if one of them said to me, you ever notice that a, a Donald Trumpsfeld, he's kind of a con man. You know, if someone said that to me, I wouldn't be like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, it's obvious why someone would say that or think that. But it kind of goes back to, you know, what I'm talking about here with like doing something to your face versus behind your back. And Donald Trump seems too much like a con man to actually be a con man. Excuse me, Trumpsfeld. Donald Trumpsfeld, he's he's too much like a like somebody you would cast in a movie to play a ridiculous con man. It's like there's a con man in a Tarantino movie. They cast someone who looks and sounds like Donald Trump because it's over the top. It's almost stylized. It's not almost. I mean, when you look at Trumpsfeld, he is stylized. He is a stylized human being and in, in a way that doesn't please many people. But he's nonetheless created this real-life caricature, and he comes across like if Tarantino wanted somebody to be, you know, a cheesy, over-the-top con man in a movie, he would probably make them look like Trumpsfeld, and you would probably say, oh, man, that's a little too, uh, it's, it's a little too slapsticky for me. It's a little too over-the-top. Because in real life, Con men are people who will fly completely under your radar. Like, I'm someone who, you know, not to, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm as paranoid as I used to be, but I will say that I'm hyper vigilant. And what that means is I'm always looking for potential cons. You know, like, it's not paranoia. Like, I don't think I'm a freak about it. I don't think I'm unhinged. But I would say I'm hyper vigilant. I pay very close attention, you know, I do look behind my back regularly, like if I'm walking, I do a back check, I have techniques for doing that, so I don't look like an idiot swinging my head around, but, you know, I I have little techniques I've developed so that I can subtly pay attention to my surroundings, so that I can know what's going on, you know, I make, it's an important part of my life, just, is just to be aware of things, and that, what is that? What is that all about, though? Am I just doing it because I'm I'm afraid of the wind? I'm worried that a, a cat is gonna jump on my back. No, it's all about people. All of my hyper vigilance. Yeah, if I'm deep in the woods on a hike, I might be thinking about bears or mountain lions, but I have to be on their territory. But ninety nine point ninety nine 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 nine, however long you want to take it. 99.9% of my hypervigilance in life in life is completely focused on other people. And not just people attacking me physically, because I'm not that worried about being attacked. You know, I do, there are times where I pay close attention, like I'll eyeball people, you know, I'll keep an eye out if I think someone looks like they're, they're unhinged or something. But so what does that leave you? If you're a hypervigilant person, what does that leave you with on a practical daily level? It means you're constantly looking for people who are trying to con you. (laughs) So that was was a very long way of saying I feel like I devote a lot of my awareness to spotting con men. And I wouldn't say I'm perfect at it, but I something I've learned is that they 
are incredibly good at flying under your radar. They're the girl who has the perfect story that explains some mess, some dangerous mess. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's somebody who, they give you the perfect story and they seem so sympathetic. And yeah, you can be a con man, a con woman. These days, they're calling them con people. Oh, I noticed that you use the term con man. Is that kind of like a con person? Is that an antiquated, chauvinistic way of saying con person? Oh, look, this, this book says con man, not con person. Better throw it into the burn pile. A con person. But you, you'll know a good con person because you don't know it. And that doesn't mean that everybody who doesn't seem like they're conning you is conning you. You know, like I said, I'm not paranoid. That's paranoia. But hypervigilance means noticing that tingle. You know, it's, it's noticing that feeling in your stomach when you feel like somebody is lying to you or manipulating you. Because that will tell you a lot. Your body knows. I mean, it's not your body, obviously. Your body is just giving you the message, but you're just being knows. Like, if you clear a path, like, if you, if you, <laughs> if you eat well, and if you don't overeat, and you're not, like, high and drunk all the time, and you just kind of maintain a clear system, your intuition will start telling you a lot more. And one of those things is when somebody is not to be trusted, you will develop this kind of sixth sense and you'll feel it physically. Like when somebody tells you a lie to your face, even if you don't have any reason to know that, like even if you don't have any evidence and you weren't suspecting anything to begin with, there's something chemical, there's something psychic, there's just something that happens and there's a really weird moment that can happen in life where somebody tells you a lie or maybe maybe you're telling the lies. Why assume that, that you're perfect, you know, uh, but we're, you know, let's just say somebody though just told you something and you might not know that it's a lie, but you do, you just feel that it's a lie and they feel that you, <laughs> they feel that you know that it's a lie too. So, and there's this weird moment of just total gut-wrenching dissonance. And, like, I've, I've only had that maybe a couple times in my life. Like, I'm not someone who's been lied to a lot. But I do pay close attention. Like, I, I've had people stretch the truth. I've had, you know, I've had people say things that aren't completely true. But there have been very, very few instances where someone just tells me a bold, or as they, I think they call them bald-faced. I think, I think they call them bald-faced lies. But it's, it's only been, you know, a couple times in my life where I feel like somebody has just told a bald-faced lie to me. But what's... I think in, in probably both of those situations, you know, who knows how many that there actually are, but just in a couple situations that come to mind, I knew they were lying psychically, physically, I just in spiritually, I just knew they were lying and they could tell that I knew as well. It was, there is this level of psychic communication, communication, psychic communication that goes on between people. And when it's about something bad or when it's about a lie, that's a really weird situation. <laughs> um, but, you know, to go circle back around to what brought 
what brought us here, us, like I say, like somebody else is responsible for this mess. But, uh, you know, what brought us here is the fact that con men are very deceptive if they are actually con men, if they are actually con people. What makes them good at convincing you is the fact that it's so subtle. Someone who comes across, like someone who comes up to you with a comb over and a, and a fake tan and, and, you know, a pinky ring, like that person is out of central casting in a parody about a con man. Like they're not just out of central casting in a movie about a con man. They are from central casting in a joke movie, in a comedy movie about a con man. And in real life, you know, while sometimes those people, maybe you shouldn't trust those people, maybe con men do look like that sometimes in real life. The people who are truly good at what they do are so subtle that you don't even realize it until it's too late, if ever, unless you know to pay attention for that kind of thing. Unless you've, your intuition, your just sixth sense is really fine-tuned so that you get that feeling. You know, you just get that feeling like where it's like, oh man, this... This person is incredibly manipulative and some people are so good at it. Like you think about somebody who's a truly good car salesman and not even in some underhanded way. They're not even, I'm not even saying they're doing anything manipulative. They're just trying to sell somebody something. And maybe that person is somebody who isn't planning to buy a car, but they're looking at cars And of course, that means they're a potential sale. The fact that they are looking at cars at all means that they're thinking about buying them, buying one. And there's nothing manipulative about the salesman trying to do that, trying to convince those people to buy a car. But even knowing that he's a salesman, people still get convinced that a car salesman is their friend and has their interest in mind. And I've had that experience buying cars myself. Where, you know, it's not even that anybody did any cheesy routine on me. Somebody was just really good at making me think that they liked me. Because that's what ends up happening is like people who are trying to sell you a car, they're convincing you that they like you. And then because they like you, you think that you should buy a car from, you know, it's like, it's almost like you're paying them back for being their friend. Meanwhile, there's somebody you met in a parking lot 10 minutes ago. But the ones who are so good at it actually make people feel like they are friends in that moment. And they're just somebody giving a, a somebody a tip. It's like, it's like a car salesman walking around the lot, like looking at cars and being like, hey, uh, here's a hot tip. This one, uh, 10,000 miles on it. You know, it's, just, it's just funny to think about that where it's like almost like they're giving you a tip or giving you some kind of advantage. And they do manage to convince people. And like I said, a car salesman, despite all the stereotypes of the used car salesman, you know, despite all of that, you know, car salesmen come in all forms, you know, and, and, you know, I think it's funny that used car salesmen have gotten such a bad rap considering how many people are so much severely worse, you know, than a used car salesman. Like as far as people, as far as con men committing crimes against their fellow man, 
used car salesmen are pretty low on that list. So it's kind of sad and funny, but also perfect that they've ended up being the archetype. Oh, he's kind of, oh, he's, he's, he's a con man. Oh, is that kind of like a used car salesman? You know, people probably understand the term used car salesman more readily now than even con man. Like kids coming up today would probably have an easier time understanding what you're talking about, a certain type of manipulative behavior, cheesy manipulative behavior. They'd probably have an easier time understanding what you're saying if you just said used car salesman. If you told a kid today, like, well, he's, he's a con man. You'd have to like go into some sort of etymology or something. Well, it means confidence, man. Uh, in, in, in old-timey speak, confidence men, you know, I don't even know why they're called con- I, don't, I don't even know why they're called confidence men. Because they, they get your confidence, they gain your confidence, and that's how they manipulate you. Which makes sense, if that is what it means. That makes sense, because that's exactly what I'm talking about. They make, the, they make you think that they like you. Like, that's the interesting thing. Like, think about salesmen, think about people, con men. They're not convincing you to like them. They're convincing you that they like you. And somehow that is, be- like, it's, it's almost like they're pretending to give you an advantage, but they're not. But just that distinction, I think, is important to think about when we talk about con men or salesmen of any kind or anybody who's trying to get anything from somebody. They convince you that they like you. They're not trying to convince you to like them. It's about your impression of what they think about you. That's really important to think about when we're talking about these things like politicians uh, you know, salesmen, thieves, con men, you know, it, it's, it has good manifestations and bad. It's not like it's all just horrible. I mean, although it tends to be bad. Um, and, and the interesting thing is, too, is that's what a girl does to you, if too. Like when you hear about these psychotic women who, you know, cause terror in, in a man's house and take all of his money they usually got there by convincing him that they liked him. They Again, they weren't worried about whether this guy is going to like them. Like when you think, like I'm talking about women who are, you know, just notoriously manipulative. I'm talking about black widow type women. You know, what they do is exactly what I'm talking about salesmen doing, is that they don't care about convincing you to like them. Because that's what a real person does. That's what a real insecure person does, is if you are insecure about other people, you're just trying to get them to like you. But manipulative people have this weird mirror effect that they do, which is it becomes not about you and them. It becomes about your perception of their perception of you. So it's this weird kind of bouncing mirrors around thing. Like, cause you think about like when you go into a situation, you know, you don't even think that way. Even if you're a confident person, you're generally thinking, Oh, you know, like while I want to, you know, it's not like I'm out to collect friends, but I'm going into this situation. I hope people like me. 
I hope that I present myself in such a way that people like me. You know, that's something that we all think about, but to go into it with that sales or that manipulator with that con person way of thinking, which is I'm concerned about what they think I think about them because it's through that that I can manipulate them the best. And it makes them think that they have the advantage. Meanwhile, I'm gaining the advantage when I do that. I'm actually, I'm, I'm making them think that they're on the higher ground. But in reality, I just built this little molehill for them to stand on for a sec while I actually climb to higher ground. And it's, it's a reason why people with borderline personality disorder, nothing wrong with them, you know, I mean, they're human beings. <laughs> people with borderline personality are human beings and they deserve love too. But they're notorious for what I call powdering your face, which means giving you a lot of compliments very early on. And it, it makes them seem submissive. It makes them seem agreeable to you. You know, because it's like normally the dynamic in, you know, especially a romantic situation, although I don't want to limit this to that. You know, typically the situation, though, is, oh, uh, I want (laughs) I want her to like me, so I'm going to compliment her. And if she compliments me, that means she's trying to tell me that she likes me. And so if we're both complimenting each other, we're telling each other that we like each other. And next thing you know, we're going to love each other. You know, it's, it's that sort of logic and it makes sense. But again, when it gets into this manipulative behavior, people are, are way less secure about, um, or, or they're, they're, they're way, they're way less insecure about doling out compliments. Cause I mean, even though you know that complimenting someone is the way to tell them that you like them. And when they give you compliments, that tells you that they like you. Even though that's how it works, we're far too insecure to just throw out compliments. It's like this resource where if we give too many, and and there's a reason for that. Because, I mean, girls don't like too many compliments. You know, they they like the right amount of compliments. Women like the right amount of compliments. Too many, and it's not good. They lose respect for you. And it just, it makes you seem desperate. You know, that's, it's not even about them and what they think about it. It's the fact that when you're throwing out too many compliments, you're, it's just too much. You're overloading the system. And even if they like you, you don't need to do that. So it's like almost like this, you know, it, there's a balance to it. It's almost like a fishing video game where it's like you have to like, if you've ever played a fishing video game, there are some where it's like you have to, when, it, when a fish is on the line, you have to like hit the button a bunch of times really fast, but then you have to let go of it for a few seconds to release the tension. And I imagine actually fishing is probably like this. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like basically you have to jam on the button really fast in short bursts and then let go to relieve the tension on your fishing pole so that it doesn't break. And I mean, it's kind of that way with compliments. If you're attracted to somebody, it's kind of the same way with compliments where it's like you have to like be generous and understand that this is a, an unlimited resource. And if somebody doesn't like a compliment from you, if a girl doesn't like a compliment from you, she probably doesn't like you at all. Otherwise, a compliment would mean a lot to her. 
but then if you start throwing out a bunch of compliments, it almost creates more tension, you know, than no compliments. <laughs> I don't know. This is the, I'm thinking this as I this is an example of thinking as you speak, people. I have never thought a single one of these, I guess not so much thoughts as statements. I have never thought of any of these statements before this moment. So what you are hearing are not simply words, but thoughts coming right as I say them. But anyway, the compliment thing, it's like, you know, if you give too many compliments, you got to, you got to give it a rest, you know, to ease that tension. It's just like a fishing video game. And if you're a normal person, you're also insecure about it. You're self-aware of it. You don't want to just be like, oh, did I already mention I liked your earrings? I just got to, I got to say, I, I, I still like those earrings. Oh, that ring. I love, I just, I just love that ring. Can I, can you, oh, that's a, such a beautiful ring. Are those earrings? Hey, waiter, did you get a load of uh, my date's earrings? You know, whatever it is. Whatever it is. You don't hear a lot about earring fetish, fetishes. I know they exist. I mean, we all like, uh, we all like a good earring. But, uh, it's just one of those things where, you know, you got to, I don't know, it's just you, you don't overdo it. But somebody, like I was talking about people with borderline personality disorder, and I'm, I'm generalizing. But I found that people like that, people who are trying to manipulate you in some way right off the bat, they'll give out compliments very freely. And they're good at it, too. They're very good at it, and they'll give them out freely, but it's not the same way that, you know, you would give them out too freely if you were anxious and nervous on a date with a girl you really liked. It's not the same way that you would do that very haphazardly. It's like they give them out, they give out a lot of compliments, but it's like just the perfect rhythm to suck you in. And and to be honest, this sounds riveting, I know. All this sounds riveting, this soap opera I'm telling but, you know, I don't feel that I've really been taken in. You know, as I mentioned, I'm very hypervigilant. And so I don't really feel that I've been taking it, taken in in my life by anybody, which is why I say that it's, it's a very strange feeling when you know somebody's lying and they know that you know they're lying. It becomes almost like a twisted version of what they were trying to do to begin with, which, as I was saying, is trying to get you to think that they like you. And then when you catch them in a lie or you psychically seize that lie in your hands before it enters your system and they realize you've done that, it becomes sort of a twisted version of what I'm talking about where then it becomes they know that you know they're lying. Whereas their tactic was making you think that they like you it's ended up in a situation where you know that they know that they're lying, you know, whatever it is, I'm losing track. Um, just an interesting thing, just an interesting phenomenon as part of this whole human experience that I've personally experienced a little bit of, not too much. Like I haven't lived a life where I've been surrounded by scumbags and thieves and criminals, but I guess maybe as a result of that, I've ended up studying those things in depth so it's it's been an, something that I've just read extensively about trying to understand how manipulative people think, how dark people think, 
And of course, recognizing the degree that that exists in myself, of course, it's not like I'm not manipulative. <laughs> That'd be a good bumper sticker. It's not like I'm not manipulative. It's not like I'm not manipulative. It's true, though. It's not like I've never done anything to manipulate. I just don't think I, I lean that way. I don't think I tend to do that. But uh, anyway, back to the idea that, you know, a con man is a true con man if you don't recognize that until way late in the game. It's like finding out a member of your own group. It's it's like at the end of a movie, you find out that some guy who was a good guy throughout the entire movie is actually a bad guy. That's more like a con man than, oh, the guy who we thought was a villain throughout the entire movie. Oh, the main villain in the entire movie is a con man. Well, he's not much of a con man if everybody in the world knows that he's a villain. Like, you wouldn't call the Joker a con man. It's like, oh, the guy that everybody knows is a bad guy. He's not conning anybody. A con man is the person who you think is, you know, if you're the X-Men, it's Wolverine finding out Cyclops is secretly bad at the end. You know, I know that doesn't happen, but I'm just saying, I'm just trying to use an example where it's, it's finding out that somebody who you thought was your friend and your ally... <laughs> this is getting really dramatic. Uh, but it, it's finding out that somebody you thought was your ally was actually your enemy all along. You know, that is that is a good con man. That is a con man. Because I don't think I'm just talking about good con men here. It's, this isn't even a thing where I'm like, well, good con men are so subtle you don't even know it. You know, I don't even think it's good con men. I think in order to earn the title of con man itself, con person, con woman, a con woman, Listen to me, you little con woman. Listen to me, you little con woman. Uh, I have this fantasy where I uh, I tell a, a, a little con woman what to do. I caught her trying to steal a rug out. She's trying to steal one of my fine oriental rugs out of my house. She pretended to be a sales lady. Listen to this, this chick. She was pretending to be a sales lady... Uh, Avon lady, one of these chicks who comes to your house trying to sell you, you know, Tupperwares. And she sees one look at my oriental rug, and then she starts, you know, talking to me. She's in my ear. She's she's telling me, uh, she's complimenting me. She's saying I got nice sideburns. She says she likes the little stubble above my lip. She likes my earrings. <laughs> but I notice she keeps looking at this little oriental rug. And let me tell you, this chick had that oriental rug rolled up and tucked under her arm before I finally said, what are you doing? What are you doing with my rug? That's how good this chick was. That's a good little con woman. And I said, if I'd known you that you were this much of a con woman from the start, I would have asked you to marry me. Anyway, um, but, uh, you know, you know that they're, you, somebody has to be good at it to even earn the title a con person. (laughs) 
In order to be a con person, it's not just that you have to try to con people. You have to be pretty good at it to begin with, to even get to the middle, to even be average. To simply get the title of con man, you have to be pretty subtle. And so that's something that's important to remember. Like when we're talking about politicians, when we're talking about these public figures. And, you know, I don't see Trumpsfeld as a con man because he's too consistent. And consistent in a way that is not smooth. I mean, he, he's like a meatball. He's like a rock. Like when I think of Trumpsfeld, I think visually of a, like vol- when you find volcanic rock, like, like when volcanic rock, uh, you know, some people will fill their garden with volcanic rock. Like he reminds me of a hunk of that dark red volcanic rock you can put in your garden. You know, he's, he's got a rough surface. It's like, that's just how he is. And, and as a result, you can't really say that he's, I don't know, he just doesn't have the finesse of, of a salesman. He's much more of an eccentric plutocrat, which is not the same thing as a con man or a salesman. Because the eccentric plutocrat is, of course, concerned with money and will, of course, do very shady things to maintain power and wealth. But at the same time, it's, it's almost like beyond him. It's almost like he's not even aware of what he does. It's just this kind of assumed role. And when you think about somebody who presents himself the way Trumpsfeld does, it's very eccentric. You know, it's like you can say, oh, he wishes he was tan. He wishes that he, he had, you know, blonde hair. You, know, you, can, you can point out the obvious things that he does to maybe try to look more youthful. But he also knows what people say about him, which is interesting. He's also very aware of the orange man line that people who love him and hate him both use. You know, everybody recognizes the, you know, that and and it's, you know, become a parody of a parody to call him orange man. But he knows people call him that. And he's stuck to it. He's he continues to to be exactly what it is that people are criticizing and, uh, and, you know, and his appearance, it's not what you would, uh, it's not very slick, you know, and that's what makes it so eccentric. It's kind of like the, the grandma who has blue hair. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it reminds me more of that than anything. Like if you, if you've ever known like an old lady who's taken care of financially, and the way that she just kind of like follows random whims. And I don't mean traveling. I mean just like she'll do strange things. And Donald Trumpsfeld reminds me more of that. You know, obviously he's he wants power. Obviously he's a businessman. But like in terms of his actual appearance and mannerisms, to me he's more like somebody who... A person whose eccentricity has been really brought out by their wealth. And in his case, I would say he's the ultimate plutocrat. I don't consider him a fascist. I don't consider him certainly not a, a national socialist. I would say if I if I considered him one thing, he, it would be about plutocrat. But as many plutocrats are, an eccentric one. Um... Now that I've gotten that out of my out of my system, I finally said it. I finally said it, people. 
Donald Trumpsfeld is an eccentric plutocrat. I'm, I'm so brave. I'm so brave for saying that. But, uh, but one thing I don't think he is, I don't think he's a con man because I don't think it, I don't think he's good enough at hiding what he wants. I don't think, I don't think he's, you know, maybe not good enough, but I don't, again, I think it's part of that wholeness. It's not even a matter of like being good or bad. It's just that his entire thing is like this giant block. And I know people would disagree. I know there's people who would say, oh, there's, he has backroom conversations. He has these other agendas. I know people would say that, and they're probably right. But on the whole, at least compared, you know, if we're talking, you know, comparatively here, you can see where he, he's much more of just this, this rigid, rugged, just block. Like I said, he's a meatball. He's a rock. He's a brick. And it just that brick, that, that entity that block of something, you know, you kind of have to take it all or, or reject it all, or at least just recognize that, Hey, that's just like, that's just this brick. It's just, you know, it's just this, it's a meat, it's a meatball. <laughs> and, uh, that's not con man. Like con men are usually much more smooth. They're usually much more subtle than that. They're very compartmentalized. Because to even be a con man, that itself is a compartmentalization. That itself is dividing yourself. That itself is splitting yourself into something else. And con men, liars, they're typically more than just split in half. They're typically people who have many different compartments, some of them overlapping but they have many different compartments. And just like positive disciplines interlock, just like working out and having like a, a physical fitness discipline will aid in your discipline to say eat right. You end up structuring your diet better because of these other disciplines, these physical disciplines you have. You know, and for that matter too, your your desire to create things. Like if you're used to blocking off time and forcing yourself to work out, forcing yourself to eat at certain times, it becomes easier to force yourself to, say, draw at certain times. And yeah, you can never account for, you know, inspiration or, you know, the creative process in that. But still, you can make the effort to structure even, you know, even non-physical or, or should I, you know, I mean, it's meditation too. It's anything, anything that requires you to keep doing it Anything that, you know, becomes a part of the, you know, the structure of your day reinforces other parts of that structure. If you work out, it reinforces your diet. If you work out and you eat right, it reinforces your desire to get enough sleep. If you're used to, you know, you, you now you have this block of free time where you're not committed to something else. Well, you're used to using your blocks of free time, so maybe you'll apply yourself creatively. You know, it's like it, it, there's interlocking disciplines, and they're both good and bad. Uh, and, you know, certainly negative disciplines work the same way, although they fit together a lot more naturally without you even knowing it. You know, those will just fall right together without you even realizing it, whereas you have to make an effort 
to set up these positive interlocking disciplines. Um, but uh, where were we with um, with liars? Liars. Is he a liar? Is he a lar? Are you a lar? Are you a lar to me? Somehow we came from that. Um, oh, compartmentalization. Yeah. Um, with uh, you know, with, in the same way that you know the posi- that positive disciplines interlock. You know, so do negative. You know, n- negative disciplines. And uh, when you're a liar, that starts to interlock with a lot of other things in your life too. You know, lying itself becomes a discipline. And lying actually takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of discipline to come up with stories. You know, especially if it's not just a true false lie. You know, it's easy if it's just like, oh, light light switch up or light switch down. But there's a lot of very creative lies. And most lies force you to be creative. They force you to come up with backstories that you might never use. You know that you're lying when you start, or you know something's up with yourself when you're starting to come up with a backstory to something that doesn't even need one. But that's what you do when you're bullshitting. Like you start to come up with explanations, justifications, backstories. Whereas if you're telling the honest truth, the backstory is already with you, it's what you lived. And yeah, life isn't always that easy. Sometimes you do have to get creative, even with the truth. But it is interesting how, if you've been in that situation, not that you're even outright lying, but if you're just trying to get out of something, you're just trying to make something easier on yourself. Like you've gotten trouble in school. Like if you've ever been to the principal's office, I I went several times. I wasn't the biggest troublemaker, but I I certainly made my way to the principal's office at a couple different schools. And uh, in that situation, like, I remember even back then knowing that I couldn't lie my way out. But I also knew that just for my own benefit, or there was a time where it was my friends who were in deeper trouble, and they were trying to get me to roll over because I had been with them. Um. But uh, anyway, in that situation, you know, it's not even that you necessarily are going to try to lie your way out of it, but it's like you try to come up with explanations, you try to come up with justifications, you try to come up with come up with a spin for it. And that's what a lot of your anxiety and nervousness comes from. And there's a lot of other situations like that in life. You know, it's kind of what you do if if you're like going to dinner with your girlfriend's parents for the first time and you rehearse in your head talking points about yourself or questions you're going to ask them about them or that kind of thing you know it's like you think about that anxiety and that nervousness and it's the same nervousness you have going on a date but it's also the same sort of anxiety and nervousness you have going to the principal's office cuz it's like you know you're going to have to say something and there's a, a a certain outcome you want from this. You don't want to get detention. You don't want to get suspended. Or if you want these people to like you. You want this person to like you. You know, there's those sorts of, the motivations differ. But in most situations where we have anxiety or, or we're a nervous wreck, we are trying to get a certain outcome. Like we have an agenda. 
And when you have an agenda, you then have something you have to kind of rehearse in your head. Because, I mean, all lies come from having an agenda. It's not that having an agenda is itself dishonest, but all lies come from an agenda of some kind. Yeah, some people lie for fun, but even that's an agenda. Fun is the agenda, guys. Hey, welcome to my summer cabin, guys. Fun is the agenda. No, but even if you're lying just for fun, that itself is an agenda. Even if you're lying just for some nihilistic exercise, again, it's it's an agenda. Uh, so all lies come from that. It's not that, you know, simply having an agenda causes you to lie, but you can see where those are situations where people commonly lie, too. On job interviews, it's almost encouraged to lie. Here's what you got to do. When, you, when you're at a job interview... Tell them that your last job paid you 25 an hour, even though it paid you 17. Because this way, even if they only give you 20, you aimed higher. And, you know, so it's like you have to you'll lie about little things like that. It's interesting how the workplace in general just kind of encourages lying, where it's like, lie about what you want. In the interview, lie about your desired salary. Say that you got a higher salary at your last job than you did, and this way they'll offer you a higher... You know, it's like there are all these little techniques like that. There are all these little things that you're supposed to say, and some of them are relatively dishonest. But also, like, when you have a job, how like there's this expectation that if you call out sick from work, you almost have to have a story. Like I've worked at places where they've told us, you don't have to tell us why. You know, as long as you're using paid time off, you don't, you don't have to tell us why you're taking the time off. But there's always kind of a pregnant pause if you tell an employer, hey, I can't make it in today. Hey, I can't make it in today. And the, there's sort of this pregnant pause where it's like, and why? And why aren't we get? And why aren't we going to make it into work today? Uh, I'm sick. I'm sick. You know, and then and then if you're going to lie and say that you're sick, you start thinking, oh, well, if I'm going to lie and say I'm sick, I have to sound sick. But when you sound sick, you sound dishonest because nobody's good at faking sick. <laughs> you know, like like every time that it, it's again, another one of those moments where you know that they know you're lying. It's when you call out sick to work and you're like, hey, I'm just letting you know I'm sick. And, and it's just so over the top. But then even if you are, but then like the funny reverse of that is sometimes you are actually sick and you'll call into work, but your voice sounds fine because it ain't that kind of sick. It ain't that kind of sick. Like the guy who goes, I'm sick. Ain't that kind of, it ain't that kind of sick. Ain't that kind of sick. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes you don't sound sick at all, even though you do have something. And that seems dishonest, too. Even though you're being honest in that moment, it feels dishonest because you feel like being sick has to be this performance. So just stuff related to jobs, you know, it tends to breed some level of dishonesty. And, of course, that's where you become a salesman. That's where you become a con man is while you're trying to earn a living. And even if you're not being a con man, that's where you have to put on a persona to do customer service and be like, Hey, I'm happy. I'm happy all the time. I'm so glad that you came and you're doing business with us. And by us, I mean myself and the company I proudly work for. 
You know, you have to put on these personas. So it's like there's a lot of dishonesty to that. And then you can become really annoying about that. And that to me is like pointing out that politicians are liars. It's just it's it's low hanging fruit to point that out. And once you realize that, you know, you don't want to rest there the rest of your life. Realizing, oh, hey, uh, we all have to assume personas that aren't really us and play certain roles just to get by in life because that's how things are. You know, you can point that out and then if you rest there forever, you just end up annoying. And and trust me, I know because I, I don't think I ever moved beyond that point. <laughs> like, I think in some ways I'm still hung up on the fact that we do have to play so many roles and assume so many personas. I don't think I ever completely got over that thought, which is, you know, why I end up talking about it. Uh, but uh, when it comes to stuff like that, though, when it comes to like, you know, resting on that idea, you know, it, it's not something that you you're not going to get a lot more out of that once you realize it. You know, when you realize that that part of survival is being disingenuous and having having to be dishonest in certain ways to make the money that we need to live off of and to keep the job that is giving us that money. Like there are certain ways you have to act to do that and we don't love it, but we realize that we have to do it. Um, and, uh, and we're not all con men for doing that. But I would say people who are really into it, <laughs> you know, I think I think that's a difference, too, is con men are people who are really into doing that. They're good at it and they're into it. And if that sounds perverse, it's because I believe it is. And one of the reasons why politicians are con men is because I think they are both of those things. They are good at it. They are very good at it. And I think they like it. I think they genuinely enjoy putting forth a public face that doesn't represent what they do behind the curtain. I think they enjoy the thrill of that. Because why wouldn't that be thrilling? It's not that I'm above thinking that's thrilling. Like if I gave speeches every day and everybody cared about everything I say, even the most rehearsed garbage platitudes... If everybody was paying attention to everything I do and I was one of the most famous people in the world and I had some title that represented some kind of governmental power and I did and I did that every day and that's my life but then secretly I go behind the curtain and I'm pulling strings and I'm telling like you know I'm overseeing all kinds of underhanded shit That'd be a thrill. How could that not be a thrill? I mean, there's people who get a thrill out of cheating on their spouses. How could you not get a thrill out of being a two-faced politician? That sounds really exciting. And if it fell in your lap, like if that fell in my lap, I might try it. You know, I'm not going to be a person who does the work to get there. God knows I don't want to be that kind of person who wants to do all... Oh, I... You know, I, w- I was a, a junior staffer at the blah, blah, blah. I worked for the legislator one summer. You know, these people who spend their entire lives building up to the point so that they can become a politician. You know, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way that would ever be for me. But if it fell in my lap, if somebody came to me and said, hey, you know, we're thinking you might be a good president. 
We're thinking you might be a good governor. But here's the thing. We want you to bullshit to people. We want you to bullshit to people's faces. And then you're going to do all this underhanded secret stuff behind the scenes. You know, I would say, hey, I'll try that out. Just to say I did it, maybe. I don't know. I don't I don't know if I would or not, to be honest. But I'm just saying, I understand the thrill of doing that. Which is one reason why you know they do it. One reason you know that politicians are two-faced is because you know how thrilling it would be to play that game. I mean, people role-play. Like, like people... You know, they pretend to be, they, they start little clubs where they have these these little hierarchies. You know, it's like we're the Moose Club and this is our president. We're the Elks. We're the Eagles. A group of men used to name a clubhouse after a, a random animal and they would all meet there and pay dues and socialize and network. And they would elect a chairman, a, a vice president, a treasurer, probably a group of three. To go back to that, probably a group of three people. Uh, so that desire is always there. Little kids will pretend, oh, I'm the boss. You know, kids, kids uh, as part of just little kids playing together, they'll do the same thing. Kids will become leaders. Kids will play those different roles. Um, And so we understand the thrill of it at that level. We understand why doing that is thrilling at that level. So how could it not be absolutely thrilling to do it at the highest level? It's like telling somebody, oh, there's a drug that's a lot stronger than this one. And uh, when you're ready, maybe you'll get to try it. You're probably going to think, I really want to try that. I really want to have the stronger version of this. So that's what happens. That's why people don't just stay senators. That's why they don't just stay governors. That's why they want to be president. It's not just purely ego. It's also like there's something I know exhilarating about that. And when you see a president or a politician age very quickly in a matter of like four years, it's, that's you know what people always say. It's the cliche. It's like... And you know what? The, the presidency, it ages you. The presidency, it, it ages you. Of course it does. And they say it's because of the stress, but I also look at it as just a total experience where it's like, it's like being on a roller coaster. It's like they're just drained, period. I don't even think of it, it's a matter of, oh, they're so stressed out. Because don't they live a really long time? I feel like most presidents end up living a long time after they retire, after they step down. Um... But when, when I see them, I, I think like they look like their energy got drained, not necessarily in a stressful way, not necessarily in a bad way. They look like something just got sucked out of them, but not in some weird clinical medical way. I don't know. Like I said, a roller coaster. I'm sticking with my first example. It's, it's almost like they've been on a never ending roller coaster and it's been exhilarating, but you lose a little bit of yourself from that, too. Um, so I don't blame people, you know, cause people are like, oh, they're power hungry, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like people judge politicians as people. And I guess if you're going to judge anybody, any stranger, I guess politicians are as good as any to, to judge, but they judge them for this thing as if it's not attractive, 
as if it's, you know, it's, it's kind of similar to me as the idea of like judging a drug addict where it's like, I don't want a junkie sleeping on my porch. You know, I don't want a, you know, I don't want to be bothered by a bunch of addicts who are looking to steal from me to fund their habit, whatever it is, whatever the worst end of the drug spectrum is, you know, I don't want that around me. But I'm also not going to judge drug addicts for being drug addicts. And in the same way, and I mean, this sounds like some sort of clever joke, but in the same way, I don't judge politicians for being politicians because I can understand why that appeals to them. On, on all ends of the spectrum, like I can understand why being a politician appeals to somebody who truly is a do-gooder and wants to be able to help people in the grandest way possible. And then the opposite of that, somebody who sees the highest possible place to perform a con job that will benefit them and other elites. And it's a cynical, nefarious plot from the beginning. Like, I can understand the motivation on both ends there. The do-gooder and the person who's just a willing participant in corruption. And it's just like a great... Uh, I can use this to my advantage now. I understand the appeal to both of those people and the thrill that both of them would feel. Because somebody who's a do-gooder politician, somebody who genuinely wants the nation to do well and the people of the nation to do well, that's a, a thrill. You know, that's a that's a high. It's not like that guy's not getting high. But the person who is pursuing a greater avenue of corruption. They're like, great, now I can be president and I can do all kinds of other things. I can be corrupt on a level that I, I couldn't even have imagined before. That's thrilling as well. So it's like there's a thrill no matter what. No matter what, if you become president, you feel kind of a, a thrill in your crotch. You know, you feel kind of light in the crotch, like you're floating. Um, and I don't blame somebody for that. In the same way I'm not going to blame a drug addict... I'm not going to blame somebody for being attracted to politics, being attracted to power, being attracted to influence, being attracted to a title alone, even if there's no influence, even if we are talking about politicians who are little more than the faces of something much larger who, and, and who actually have very little power themselves, even if you look at it that way, which I think is partially true but not wholly true, even then, I can see why it's attractive to them, because they get to be the person with the title. They get to be the person who's remembered. They get to be the person who people are talking about. They get to be a person who is believed to have influence. And uh, sometimes they're all con men, but I'm not going to say they all are. But I think that I operate from a base assumption that they are. And I don't abandon that idea when it's convenient to me. Because that's what you see. You see people who understand the game that, that is being constantly played. And I know that sounds lame. The game, man. I understand the game that's being played. The government, man. They're playing the game. You know, I know how annoying that sounds, but let's just go with it. The game. Uh, when... You know, there's people who have kind of figured out the game or, or you think they have or they think they have and then they get tricked or they willingly they willingly go back into it. They willingly stick their head back where it was uh, when convenient. Again, 
Like it was convenient for people to pretend that Joe Obama, you know, was uh, not just a better choice than Trumpsfeld. But there's a lot of people who once they decided that Joe Obama was a better choice than Trumpsfeld, they decided, oh, now I have to like him. Now I, I can't just vote for him because I hate the other guy. In order to smooth out this rough, the rough seas of cognitive dissonance in my scully, I've got to actually find things to like. Oh, his dog. You hear, you hear about his dog? Oh, my God. He's got a dog. I have a dog. I have a dog too, Joe, Joe Obama. I met Joe Obama and I told him I have a dog. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, uh, you know, that, that's the thing is, uh, oh man, where were we? Where were we at all? Where are we? It's not about where were we? Where are we? You know, sometimes I struggle. Rem- struggle. I, sometimes I struggle to remember where I was on this show, but there are certainly moments where I forget where I even am. And right now is one of those. Right now is a pretty big one, actually. Um, Joe. I think it was the Joe Obama spell that I cast. I think it was saying Joe Obama's the moment of disruption. I guess I was talking about just the way that, you know, it's it's difficult to support a politician that we don't like and vote for them without attempting to do some kind of reconciliation in our head and find ways to, again, justify or explain. And it, it again circles back to the honesty thing where if you're being honest, you might be anxious about the outcome, but you're not necessarily going to be rehearsing everything in your brain the spell of anxiety isn't going to be so severe that you're now saying, well, maybe it happened because of this, or I'll tell them that, or uh, so-and-so was doing this, and it made me think of this, or it was really them who did this, and I was doing... You know, you, you won't have a need to explain or justify or even give a disclaimer if you're being truly honest about something. Which is why when someone is, say supporting a candidate they don't truly like, like like Joe Mama, Joe Bama, they feel a sense of dishonesty. They don't feel like they're being entirely honest. And that's why they start coming up with justifications and explanations to get rid of that cognitive dissonance, because it is sort of dishonest in a way. I mean, I don't, th- it's not truly, you know, it's not like voting for somebody has ever been you know, it's not like that's ever been taken as, oh, that means you absolutely love them. So I don't think anybody really believes that. But just simply the action of doing it makes you think that you now have to be more in line with that choice. And you start coming up with justifications and explanations. And then uh, once you think that your guy won, you know, then you can just start... Um, Maybe then you can start criticizing him again, or then you can go back to the way you were, unless you got completely sold on whatever bullshit you were saying. Chances are you'll kind of revert back. Like, I've already seen some Joe Obama voters that I know who, you know, wouldn't have said a single bad word of him for the last six months and, in fact, praised him. I've seen some of them now, since the election is allegedly over. 
I've seen some of them now kind of start to offer criticisms of his his reg- the plans for his regime, which good for them. You know, I'm glad that they can snap out of it that quickly. This isn't a criticism of them at all because I understand what people have to do. But it is interesting to see that. It is interesting to see people snap back out of it while others haven't. Many other people haven't snapped out of it. And those are the people who I talk about where it's like, they had to figure out some kind of equation. I mean, maybe they like a politician enough to begin with. You know, some people do genuinely like a politician enough to begin with. But other people, and this goes beyond politics to just about anything that you could potentially believe in or like, you know, whether it's an idea or an interest, this kind of applies to that. But it's like sometimes you'll start doing equations. or It's almost like you've come to a conclusion where you're like, I've decided that I support this thing. And you don't really realize why, or maybe you know the reason why is kind of bullshit. So you start going through equations in your head to try to figure out how you can justify that conclusion. It's like having the answer to a math equation and being told, just figure out a formula that will get you here. And then your brain starts doing that. And that's what a justification is. That is what an explanation does. It's a way of trying to be like, well, here's this answer to an equation. But I don't know what the equation is, and I have to come up with one that will give me this answer. And when that happens, nobody can actually call me a liar because the equation does have that result. But everyone knows I kind of worked backward. Everyone will know I kind of worked in reverse. Or anybody who has a good sense will realize that I had a conclusion to start with, and I was finding ways to justify that. And that's what people do when they vote for someone. You know, unless they are truly enthusiastic about a candidate, they will be like, well, you know, uh, he's got a nice dog. I like that suit he was wearing. You know, they'll come up with ways... And that's just part of our mental health, too. I think that we kind of have we kind of force ourselves to do that in some cases. But like I said, it's not just, you know, things like voting. It's also just the things that we commit ourselves to individually. Because we're not always honest about that either. You know, we're not always honest about what we truly like or don't like. And sometimes we want to signal one thing. You know, it's like we want to make people think that we're into something because that sends the signal that we want. And if you don't actually like that thing, you start having to come up with explanations for it. Like, I mean, I'm personally of the opinion that, you know, any art, any piece of art, if it's visual art or sonic art, if it requires some kind of statement, if it requires it, not that it's wrong to make a statement, but if it requires some kind of statement in order to understand it, some sort of explanation, I'm not interested in it. I'm not going to say it's good or bad. I'm just probably not interested in it if it requires an explanation in order to even understand why it could have some sort of appeal. That's just not where I'm at when it comes to appreciating my interests. Because there's enough to think about past that. You know, with the things that I like, with the things that I'm interested in, with the people I like. 
I feel like there's enough substance to them that the explanation is just like an unnecessary, it's just kind of redundant in a way. Because if, if I truly like something enough, it'll provoke enough thought, enough words in me that I don't need some uh, someone else's words trying to prepare me for that. Or give me some sort of context, which is important. I like context. But again, context is one of those things that is it's better observed than having it told to you. Like, it's way better to understand the context of a joke just right away than to have somebody be like, oh, by the way, the context of that joke is that if you were in an elevator with a bag of fish, that would explain why why the cat was sniffing your shoe. You, you know, I don't know what the hell this, I don't know what joke that is. I don't know what story that is. <laughs> I don't know what context that is. If you if you're trying to bring fish into you, the the apartment elevator of your tenement building and and a, a, a an alley cat is sniffing your shoes, uh, you I don't even know, man. Um, but yeah, if somebody has to explain the context to you, especially after the fact, it something either wasn't meant for you. Or, uh, I don't know, either way, just you don't need to be involved in that. If context has to be explained to you explicitly, you weren't meant to understand it. And that's what explanations are, that's what, I don't know, I, I forced context I think is a real thing. When someone forces context onto something, whereas anything that benefits from having some sort of context, it benefits from the natural context that it fits into. And to add some sort of forced, unnatural context to something, to me, ruins the entire point of having context at all. Of, of even making any kind of statement at all. So by adding forced context, you're actually destroying the thing you're trying to do before you even do it. And, uh, I don't know, this has been a real spiral of an episode. I'm sure there are a lot of unfinished thoughts. I'm sure I started on a bunch of topics and I didn't end up finishing. A lot of political talk. Um, but uh, you know, maybe maybe there'll be more ideas to come from this episode. I don't feel like too much is brand new. Uh, but you know, there's some ideas that I'd like to come back to here. But sometimes you just have to go. You know, I don't take notes. I don't stop and go. This is just stream of consciousness. It is as it it is as it goes. But I know there are some ideas I was talking about earlier that I want to revisit, specifically relating to honesty. And I guess as sort of a, a way to close this episode out, you know, there's a something I've said many times over the years on this show, on Night School, which is that when you tell the truth, your world gets bigger, and when you tell lies, your world gets smaller. 
And that was what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about like how when somebody is a liar, their life is very compartmentalized because certain people can't meet because if those people meet, it'll expose the lie that that per the, the third party told both of those people. So people who are dishonest, not just liars, not just pathological liars, like you don't have to take all this super literally. Like you don't have to imagine a guy who has 10 girlfriends and he's lying to them all. And uh, you don't have to imagine that exact, the most literal representation of this, although I think it helps. But it's just living a life with any dishonesty at all, with any conscious, purposeful dishonesty. You do really compartmentalize your life. I mean, if you've ever, ever had the experience of... I went to a friend's birthday one year growing up as a teenager, I think it was... And he had some other older friends there who he knew through another hobby. And it was a very awkward birthday party because it was like you could tell that he presented himself very differently and good for him. Like if I had a bunch of older friends, you know, as a teenager, I'd, you know, I I'd actually did have some. But it's like if I had, you know, a group, a group of older friends, I would probably act a little differently in front of them than I would my high school friends, even though I'm still a high school kid, too. You know, it's like you have to get past the fact that we it's kind of like the whole thing about roles I was saying earlier, where it's like you got to get past the fact that you talk differently to different people. You present yourself differently to one group than you do another and not just at work where you have your professional identity even if you have multiple friends you're a slightly different person around each of them because those relationships aren't just you and these other people and you're not fixed when you and certain friends get together you create a third entity you create some sort of shared entity that only exists when you're with those people with that person and so going to my friend's birthday party I remember as one of his high school friends, it just felt awkward because it's like we were the kids. And meanwhile, there were these older dudes who were cool. And, uh, you know, the, my friend was clearly trying to cater to them. Like he was acting, you could tell he was having a hard time kind of balancing who he is to the kids he grew up with versus these other people. And it was very awkward, but it's also very understandable that it's like we are different to different people and that's not dishonesty. Like, and, that's, and that's not what I mean when I say dishonesty. It's why I don't think you should feel sick because you have to pretend that you're in a good mood to do a customer service job. You shouldn't feel like a dishonest person because you have to do that. In the same way, you shouldn't feel like a dishonest person because you act one way around one group of people that you have A, a and B in common with, and you act a different way with another group of people that you have C and D in common with. You know, it's totally understandable and that we are, to some degree, amorphous. You know, we're not totally static. But then there's full-blown dishonesty. Then there's people who are con men. There are people who li- who are liars. And those people also utilize different groups of people. But their compartmentalization is much different. It's much less natural. It's something that's necessary. Because their entire web, their entire structure depends on certain things not crossing it it depends on certain compartments staying separate
And again, I know this sounds like I could be talking about a guy who has 30 girlfriends and he has to balance between them without them knowing about each other. You know, I know that that would be the most obvious example, but it's like I'm even just talking about little things you do. The little things you do. I'm even talking about those sorts of things. There are many little dishonest things you do in life, and we all do them, but many of them you can stop doing. Because lying, as I was saying a bit ago, is a discipline. It's something that you commit to. And it actually requires a great deal of discipline to maintain and uphold and create lies. But the amount of energy that takes is going to make it difficult to, you know, you, the amount of energy that takes is going to make it difficult to do anything positive because you're entirely focused on this negative structure of tiny compartments you've created and you're trying to like, And one thing that's really interesting is if you've ever known somebody like that, you may have had a moment where you realize they don't know what they're actually doing. And that's extremely scary. There was somebody that I knew who had been telling many lies. And I believed that they were. um, And I'm not talking down about this person at all. I actually have respect for them. But, uh. I guess I was operating off of the assumption that this person was a, a professional at what they were doing. And there was a moment where I realized they weren't. There was a moment where I realized that this person was winging it like everybody else, like the president is doing. I realize that this person is winging it, and even though they've learned some of this and it's worked for them and they, they know how to spin a story, they know how to play this end of the game and this and that the moment that I realized they had no idea what they were doing terrified me because it seemed it made everything seem so nihilistic where I I realized that this person has this weird agenda and they're constantly manipulating these different compartments in their life but there is no real reason for it like there is no, and, and this person isn't even that good at it because when you're playing around with that many different elements, it's hard to be good at it. It's hard to juggle, you know, and it, it was just a weird moment for me and I, I wish I could give more detail. Maybe I will eventually, but who, who needs to fill in the blanks as you see fit. Um, it was just really eye-opening and, and actually terrifying is the word I would use to realize that this person who is a very artful and subtle manipulator. And and then, not that that's the whole of them, but the fact that this person is that way, and even with all of that, even, even with that ability to manipulate, they're still not even that good at it, and they're constantly at the edge of their seat. And maybe that again gets back to the thrill of it all. Because I think that's why... I think that's why in some cases people are dishonest. I think that's why in some cases people live these in these tiny compartmentalized worlds where they've created just these these different shadow stories. You know, I think a part of it is that it is thrilling for them in the same way that it's thrilling for a politician to be two-faced and to live multiple lives and to do different things on the surface than he's doing under the surface and all of that. You know, I think that actually explains some of these things, not all of them. Not all not every not everything can be explained because it's a thrill. 
<laughs> that's how you know my mind is gone is that I reach a point in life where I say, uh, oh, you know why, oh, you know why the, the world works the way it does? Because everybody's just after a thrill. Everybody's just chasing a thrill. Hey, are you chasing any thrills lately, kid? Oh, come hang out with me, baby. Uh, I spend all my time just chasing thrills. Let's go chase a thrill. Hey, honey, come over here. Let's let's go chase a thrill together. Hi, I'm in the business of uh, chasing thrills. How do you how do you get them? Just just with me, you know. I I, I promise not to tell anybody any any of your secrets. But where do these thrills come from? How do you get these thrills? How do you follow these thrills, man? Well, let me tell you. You gotta lie a lot. You gotta lie a lot. <laughs> they call me Sir Lie a Lot. Yeah, the day that um, my daughter Rarity married Sir Lie a Lot was the proudest day of my life. Except for the fact that I'm lying. It was, it was a disgrace. The day that my beautiful daughter Rarity married a loser like Sir Lyalot was an absolute disgrace. And I'd, I'd be lying if I said that I, it was a good day for me. It wasn't a good day for Dad. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't a good day for Dad, let me tell you that. But I'm gonna lie and say that it was a good day because I get I get a thrill out of lying. In fact, my fantasy is to be on stage giving the State of the Union address to the entire country and to lie about every single thing I say and to feel the thrill. It's a I'm a, I totally get what you mean, man. Life is about finding thrills. Lie your way into the next thrill. Shatter your life into a million tiny pieces and live in terror at the idea of those pieces becoming whole again. Because that's what ends up happening when you live a very dishonest life is that your life does get shattered and you realize that the, the little compartments that a liar has created... They're not these well-maintained little pods. They really are like pieces of shattered glass. You know, that's, that's what you end up finding out. And that's about as poetic as I could possibly make it. Which is, you know, of course, a motto of mine. As poetic as you can possibly make it. Yeah, I write taglines for businesses. I, I, got, a, I got a new gig. I'm self-employed. Hey, I got a new side hustle. I come up with slogans for companies. And our own slogan, the slogan for my slogan company, is uh, as poetic as you can possibly make it. We come up with poetic slogans for companies. Hey, you ever thought about giving a, a nice poetic slogan to this company here? You ever thought about putting a nice... See, I'm imagining it right here. Right under the letters here. Right under the letters. Imagine it says something poetic. 
That'll bring people into your store. Listen to me. Companies that have, have put a poetic slogan on the sign of this store have seen an up spike in sales that's like uh, nothing you ever seen. But I'm actually just lying to you right now because the, the truth is, is no matter how poetic my slogans are, nothing gets me higher than telling a good lie. <laughs> these characters, these people in this world that, that uh, I can visualize, people in this world that I can visualize who do not exist, but nonetheless can be channeled. These people who make signs, who make, who make poetic slogans for businesses. Uh, if you can dream it up, you know, you dream, dream big, because if you can dream it, you can make it happen. <laughs> That's what would happen if somebody came to me and they were like, oh, I, I heard that you make uh, s poetic slogans for businesses. I'd be, I, I would have made this big deal. I would have done all this advertising about how I have this business who will do this for you. And they come to me and they want to hear my ideas. They want to know what slogans I've come up with, what poetic slogans. And I'm just like, uh, dream big, because if you can dream it, you can make it happen. And they're like, uh, that's poetic. <laughs> This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.